Welcome to The Uncertain Artist, where each week we discuss the highs and lows of carving out a life in the arts, specifically the collaborative arts, and mostly here in Seattle. Our starting point each week is an episode of the YouTube show, The Uncertain Detective, which was created by me, Greg Lashow. And I'm joined today by Charlie Lashow, who has a prominent role in many of the episodes. And today we'll be discussing episode five from our first season with our guest Maggie Brown, who has a role in and wrote the music for episode five. So, Charlie, did you get a chance to watch the episode? I did, and I was loving the episode. Reminded me, I loved everything that I wasn't in. Oh, yeah, Joking. that's how it is. But yeah, I thought everything was great. Um, I have some things to talk about it, but maybe I'll save them for yeah, a little tell bit later. Me, well, Tess, start us out with one thing that struck you or uh, that you yeah, have something to say. Yeah, um, I loved the music at the end with Maggie and Charlie Rathbun. Oh, right. Um, thought it was beautiful, and I forgot that Maggie was singing in it as well. Yeah, that worked And it really made me well. so happy when her voice came in. I was like, what? So that song comes in at the end of a scene with you where you're playing the assistant detective, right? Mm. And uh, Charlie Rathbun is playing the client who has come to you. Let's see if I can remember this. He's come to you because he suspects that his dog has been cloned and he has the clone. And what you've discovered is, in fact... Yeah, we had to tell him the hard truth that he is the clone and it's not the dog. And that's why the dog doesn't doesn't respond to him well. And then the music comes in. Maybe we'll listen to that for a moment. But the good news is, Percy is definitely not a clone. He's the same dog as always. On that, rest assured. It's all in the report. Well, that's a relief. But I'm all he has in the world. Yet he looks at me with such loneliness sometimes. How do you explain that? It's all in the report. Can't you just tell me? Because you're... Because you're a... You're a clone. Your dog is confused because you're not the man he's always known. It's all in the report. Thanks. But your love for Percy is still real! Would've been better for us both had we never In this wide wicked world had never met for the pleasures we both seen together I am sure love my heart won't forget So did this guy get down on his left knee or his right knee? Dreaming tonight of my blue eyes Who is sailing wide over the sea Oh yeah, I love hearing that. I do remember I like this episode a lot. Although I didn't rewatch it, as is my norm, but... Um, there's good stuff in that episode. Oh, uh, there's yeah. a lot of good stuff. I love. I had a question about the song. I wanted to know if Maggie and Charlie Rathbun did that at the same time together, or if it was recorded separately. 
Uh, Maggie was in. Well, we'll ask her. Uh, why don't we bring in our guest today, Maggie Brown? Hey, Maggie. Oh, you're fragile today. <laughs> My heart. <laughs> okay. It's fragile. I'm super excited you're here, Maggie. Um, me too. Thanks so for having me. We've known each other for a little while. A long time. I think since you were two and a half. So, yeah. Yeah. Two and a half, three. Um, and uh, over the years, we've subjected you and Charlie <laughs> to the weirdness of our theater shows and our films. Um, I think the first time you were in one of our pieces, you were eight, nine? Uh, a little later. Maybe we had, We had been writing for The Stranger. Oh yeah, which was it through your connection? So you okay? So so my, my that's son when Sam that, and Maggie are best friends. Yeah, that's when the and being they immersed were, in, you were movie critics for this stranger, right? Yeah. Being immersed in Seattle art, yeah. Beyond, you know. I have a funny story about that. So we were at some store on Broadway. You guys were ten, and uh, it was like a kids' store or something. And Sam said, "Can I have this?" And I said, "Well, you can use your money that you got from the stranger and the." The cashier said, oh, my God, you're the reviewer for the stranger. <laughs> like, he was spotted. It's so funny. Yeah, we started to get spotted, man. And I have always, you know, for years I thought of you as a performer on stage. And then um, what was, was Lynn's film your first film? Yes, except I was in a short film that Lynn did before we go way back. Which I don't know if is really if it's out there or how it was if it was ever really formally released, but it was just me canoeing on a canoe. I remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah. so we greenlit Lynn Shelton to make her first feature, and you are one of the stars of that. Um, and then this is I was remembering this as I was walking to the studio today. We were in rehearsal for a show. Don't remember the show. And Megan and I both looked at each other at a certain point because you had wandered into the corner and started playing the piano uh, while we were rehearsing. And both of us, like, at the same time realized, oh, my God, this is, like, really good, whatever it was you were playing. I think you were improvising. But we, at that point, didn't think of you yet as a musician. So you probably are the other way around. So tell us a little bit about your artistic journey in that respect. Oh, gosh. I mean, yeah, music is at the core of my work um, and always has been. I think I just have a strong connection to sound and to music. And But I did, uh, I did dance. That's right. I did dance. I was dance chant student at Pacific Northwest Ballet. And, um, and I was in several, I guess that was the first time I was really on stage prior to your guys' work. I was in Nutcracker. Midsummer Night's Dream, is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, Charlie's and, in that And Cinderella, in the PNB productions. Um, and liked being on stage, I guess. Just liked being in the arts. But I noticed that most of what I liked about going to those ballet classes was the piano. So you're very young and, and you're like, this oh, music age. is for me. Me and yeah. music are, are a world together. I think together. right after I quit ballet, around 13, I, I just was like, all I'm doing is music. I kind of quit sports. I quit all the physical. I was like really into just the physical arts, martial arts, you know, sports um, and dance. And then by teenagehood, I was like, that's all 
it's it's just about and music. it was hours a day of the guitar if i'm not mistaken from there i mean yeah starting i taught myself the guitar for a couple years and i was sourcing tabs from the early days of the internet and what does that mean sourcing tabs? like uh tablature chord charts oh, okay. basically notation that would allow oneself to teach themselves the instrument without lessons then i was like okay well i've kind of reached a peak in how much I can teach myself. I've learned some songs, some basics, and then I started taking lessons, and then it was just like, this is what I'm doing now with my life. And then I started recording. I had a little field recorder that had this multi-tracking capability, and that was around the same time that I quit all the physical arts. Um, and I just started recording things and putting things together, and then it was then it became sort of about, yes, guitar was like, the center, but also recording and, I guess, orchestration, you could call yeah, it. Yeah, when did but... you start to think? So now you're a PhD candidate in composition, is that right? I'm still a student, not a candidate. Oh, okay. But, you yeah. are a PhD student in in, 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 in composing. composing. Yeah. yeah, composition. So when did you, when did that start to be like, oh, maybe I'm a composer also? Probably 14. Wow. I think I took a year of like classical guitar lessons and then was just like started writing for guitar mostly then I was doing songs and recording those but I, w I really liked the putting lots of parts together mm. you know even though it was only me at that point I was just playing all of the parts because I knew enough about music where or you know I let my ear do the work and I had a little keyboard and drum sets would come in and out of our basement we never actually owned any we didn't own much but for whatever reason like stuff just kept going in and out and I learned different technology over the years um mostly like the free like low-end stuff um whatever was available for whatever time period that was 2000s and you're you range from gamelan to classical guitar to what you're I don't know what, to, what, what when someone Say says what, what I'm doing now. Yeah, so <laughs> so people people ask that question. Oh, they what do. kind of music? And you say what? Uh, you could say new music. Sometimes I say new music, but now if you know about new music, that also comes with different connotations, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, that I don't really, you know, I'm I'm really not into genre or check boxes or anything like we just have this drive to define and i kind of am like maybe my music is about um rejecting that i mean what i know i do is have a website marguerite there you go i know you musically uh well first of all talk a little bit about gamma gamelon oh gosh yeah um haven't been in the gamelan scene for a while. Although, actually, I did But that was write... a big deal for you here in Seattle, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I got into it at Cornish, because Jared, Jared Powell has... Who was at Cornish, professor at Cornish, um, retired now. But he had a whole gamelan there, beautiful set of instruments, um, and ran a student ensemble but also ran a community ensemble called Gamelon Pacifica. That's right. And I played in the student ensemble for a couple semesters and really loved it and was one of the people who was really devoted to learning about it and learning some of the more complex parts. One of the cool things about Gamelon music is that there's a huge range of, you can be a basically a non-musician almost, you know, or very, you don't need to have like 
any exceptional musical capabilities to play a lot of the parts that it, for the ensemble. It's a large ensemble. But then there's also parts that, you know, require an entire lifetime of, of study and devotion in order to really understand, which is very much not me, by the way. I'm <laughs> maybe more in between. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then I started playing in Gamla Pacifica for years. And composing for it? Composing a little bit for it, yeah. I mean, I, I like to write for instruments that don't get as much attention, and I think there aren't a lot of uh, people at least in this country, that are writing for those instruments. So that was exciting to me. And and I spent some time in Indonesia also, like oh, on a fellowship right. program. Okay. So I don't know anything about, but I've put some pieces together just now. So this is um, from Indonesia? The, yes, yeah. And it's a collection of instruments that it's come a, together? It's, a, it's kind of an orchestra. Yeah, it's like an orchestra of gongs and chimes, and uh, there's a kind of a fiddle type of bowed, you know, string cool. instrument, um, different metallophones, a lot of percussion. Gotcha. But yeah, it's a, it's beautiful. It's really some of my favorite music. I haven't been actively playing traditional music for a while, but I did write, recently compose a new piece for six players um, of, it's for Gamala Pacifica, and that should be out uh, later this year or early 2025. And there, that was a commissioning project, and there's a couple other composers. Two of them are from Indonesia um, that are going to be on the record. So to get um, a gig as a composer, is that you reaching out to others? Is that people you already know? Is that people discovering you somehow? How does it come about? It's a total mix, or it has been for me. I think... I'm a little bit of a weird case, maybe because I have had a very, or not very, somewhat diverse career outside of academia. Um, but I also have this whole life in academia in terms of like my music career. Um, and they are pretty different worlds. You know, there are many people that are in my my program, you know, as PhD students where the majority of their career has been just within academia. Um, and so you take advantage, but there's an advantage to that because there are a lot of opportunities that are just kind of handed to you when you're in those programs. I mean, that's why you... And, and performers and to play with Performers to play them, funding, you know, all of these things that, that like institutions can provide. It's part of why I've like stuck with academia despite having a lot of issues with it. Um, so there's that, but I have done a lot of work outside of academia and think that that is kind of more valuable. Um, and and it, and by by doing that, I have all of these connections um, in different cities, you know, most mostly West Coast. And one of the connections which looms large you. for me, we'll get to the show and what you've done for me, but uh, is just your work with my with Charlie's older brother, Sam, yeah. which is a whole other vein totally. of, of collaboration. Wh how does that collaboration work? That collaboration, I mean, it just is a direct, directly stems from our friendship. You know, we, um, we have really different interests and different skill sets, which complement each other. And that I, I really like working with people and, kind of be, being able to play a role in realizing their vision 
because when I'm doing my own work, it's sort of my vision and then I bring people in. So I don't really get to switch roles as much where it's someone else's vision and I get to be the behind the scenes person, you know, and and make make it happen. Yeah, and you guys did two we've done a, a fantastic lot of, albums and we've in done addition two to records. other things. You just had an album that come out this year called Heavy Hearts, which yeah. is really great. Love Heavy Hearts. Love yeah. it. And Play Pretend is it's you know many people's too. favorite of uh, album of Sam's. Yeah, and I I like it because that type of work allows me to use a skill that I worked spent many years honing, you know, like being able to um orchestrate and more in a popular style, but also be able to like think outside the box with this whole other training. It allows me to sort of get away from just being and you know, just being a popular mm. music person or just being a, an experimental music person. Um, not to say that the two worlds are combined in an extreme way with our, with our records, but having the different skill sets and, being able to bring them together, I think, makes them unique. So, like, with Play Pretend, I never really knew how this really started, this collaboration. Um, you said that you like coming into, like, it not being your own thing and being able to help someone with their vision. Um, did he come to you and ask you to be a part of this? Were you guys hanging out, working together, and created something? Yeah. I mean, over the years, it was a lot of hanging out, you know, I mean, since middle school really yeah. and more so in in high school where we started to really like lay down different layers of tracks i think in middle school we both were doing music but in really different ways but both were like oh we're both doing music now that's mm -hmm. cool you know and then in high school that's when the real collaboration started um and so it was always a thing that we did uh but yeah i guess sam more formally was like i want to make a record with you, you know, where it's like uses your skill sets nice. and combines them with mine. And that was play pretend. Yeah. And we had had a lot of those, or he wanted actually to use some of my songs that I had written in, in high school that he really liked that he just had, you know, I would show him a song and be like, Oh, check this out. You know, I just like did this in my basement or whatever. And, and he was like, wow, that's super cool. We could make this in, you know, with the right production, like let's we could put a little money into this and like really make it like a produced piece of work you know did any of those come become part of yeah anything? worth your time wow that was a that melody and chord progression um and some of the sentiment of the song not the exact lyrics but there was a there were a few lines that we sort of took and like reworked directly from a song that i had written in when I think when I was at Garfield. 19 was confusion and stress. 20 was doing my best. 21 was boozing and sex. 22, every day was a weekend. The blow kept me awake and the zany kept me from tweaking. I'm thinking I was invincible, I couldn't be stressed. Music was popping, I'm thinking this is as good as it gets. At 23, I didn't sleep. Up making records at 24, I discovered depression. I know. Did you love that song? Like, 
since you had written it. I love Worth Your Time. Yeah. Uh, it's hard for me, you know, similar to what you said earlier about, like, I love all the parts that I'm not in. Uh -huh. It's hard for me to go back and listen to some of those songs. I mean, they're really DIY, you know, they're not mm -hmm. well produced, which is cool. Like, it has a, so a sort of, like... I can't tell. I'll say that. Well, if you heard my original one, you would you would oh, be okay. like, "Oh, that's like really scrappy," you know. Okay. I mean, I was doing my best with the tools that I had. Had I just had you know pretty low end. I mean, I had one mic pretty much, and it was for yeah. whatever the time. It wasn't even like a good microphone for the time. So that's been the case your whole life. Like it's pretty. So you work with like, what you have. Work with what you have. You yeah. work with what you have, and I really respect that. And I think that that helped me um, problem solve mm. creatively in ways that I think if I had been handed more, um, not to say that I was like disadvantaged necessarily, but if I had been, you know, given all the nice gear or or like, you know, family pays for studio time or whatever. I mean, I did have friends that had those resources and they made records, you know, and I was always like, gosh, wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> but at the same time, they didn't have to learn how to like, you know, it's like, oh, I just uh, I need to learn how to produce this myself. And, and then you make all these mistakes and you're like, oh, well, next time I'll do it a little bit better and then a little bit better and a little better. Yeah. I'm a better producer are, now. Mistakes are not only like super important, oh, but so the, important. most of the good stuff comes from, maybe not most, but certainly a lot of so my much. stuff that I wind up liking is um, comes from mistakes. I love mistakes. Yeah. So <laughs> much love for mistakes yeah. and failing, you know, like how many, how hard can I fail before it becomes good? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you failed in a public way? Oh, yikes. Um, or a time? In a public way, I depends on what you consider public. I mean, I used to have a um, an issue with just getting really embarrassed for whatever reason. I, you, uh, maybe as teenagers, this is probably around then. Once you start to develop ego, and you're like, "Oh gosh," everything becomes cringe, you know. Yeah. And I really like, as an expressive person, I could not turn off my my bright red cheeks. Yeah. So I would be in the classroom or whatever, and even just saying something that made sense, you know, like the fact that I was talking out loud in a group of people, just the yeah, cheeks yeah, would just go. With there. So that was, that's kind of public failing, or at least it's um, standing out yeah. in a way that I, you don't want to be standing so out. So let's turn to, so uh, <laughs> if you watch The Uncertain Detective, virtually every piece of music you hear is composed by Maggie, um, often played either in full or in part by you as well. And much of it comes from a collaboration that all three of us were in um, called uh, The Man Who Could Forget Anything, which is a show that we did it on the boards and should have been able to keep going with because it would have turned into a phenomenal show if we'd given it, been able to Told do it, it another go around. Yeah. Um, but the music that lives on from that. And so how did that, what was that collaboration like? Like, how did that music come about? What, what was my role? What, like, talk a little bit about Well, that. you wanted, um, to me, that music is very much like for theater. It's very much for, it is another way of me being able to like realize someone else's vision. I mean, it is my, my voice still. I mean, even the stuff with Sam, it's still my voice, you know, but but yeah, you wanted something that was going to be 
for the stage and you said, you know, this is the budget and these, this is the instrumentation that I'm leaning towards, you know, can you get people? I knew people, what was it? Trumpet, clarinet, trombone. You wanted it to be kind of I would have said trombone. You really wanted it to be like theater music, but also not theater music, not in that sort of like over the top theater Mm -hmm. way, but yeah, it was, and then it was, there we had a piano too. I played piano. Um, and then, so you were then in charge of rounding up the, the musicians, getting the commitment, rehearsing. Yeah. Yeah, I did organize that with the, the you know, with the budget and the right. number of people you had in mind. Yeah, it was clarinet, trumpet, trombone, cello. Cello. And then I played piano and guitar sometimes. And then we got a recording of that. How did that recording come about? Was that something we just did add on the boards or did uh, you get Paul together? and I recorded it. Paul brought um his this is Paul uh, Moore. Paul Moore. Paul Matthew Moore. Um brought a, a portable recording setup. And that was very generous of him. Thank you, Paul. Beautiful recording. Really it turned out well, nice. Yeah, it turned feels, out really nice. So lucky, and yeah. you know, he he's got great uh, amazing skills and um yeah, and so I just had, you had wanted it recorded and maybe there was a little extra budget to get the musicians to come back mm. one time. And I don't know, I must have organized securing the space. Not not that difficult. And we recorded it, yeah, in on the boards in the big theater, just with portable mic and setup. And then over the years, I've asked you to compose stuff for one film or another, Um and I steal that for the uncertain fact. I don't know. Your, um, the film. Oh, uh, has a lot of guitar. Charlie music. and me. Charlie, Charlie and me. me. I think it was. Was it Charlie and me? No, it wasn't. No. It, it was, was the trip to Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. That was right. Yeah. That's right. About Gettysburg. a trip that Charlie and I take. And yeah, that was the one. <laughs> that was the one. I I think it was probably ten years ago now. But I did the score for yeah. that yeah. film, and I love the music for that. I recorded it myself at home. And I think I steal some of that for the show. But and and sometimes you'll I'll you'll uh, send out an email. Hey, I have a new piece. If you want to hear it, and I'll listen. And I just admit, like I'm not listening it for any reason other than can I steal something right. for it? Yeah, Which I always ask you, of course. <laughs> fine by me. But um, I like to get my music out. I mean, we haven't had the chance for the uncertain detective. Not true. In the early sort of work sketchbook version of the uncertain detective before these two fuller seasons i asked you for a specific piece of music that was very like detective-y um okay so i did do actually a couple things specifically for the show for the most part it's pre-existing music that you are setting you know from man who can forget and gettysburg right but and and maybe it maybe it Occasionally, I'll occasionally I'll send you something. Yes, and it'll just be like, oh, I just have this, yeah. you know. Um, but it's mostly from those two things. And then I did do one session. I remember now, just electric guitar, where you wanted some stings. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> which was really fun for me. See, these are the kind of things that I love. I love. That's what's fun for me about composing. Is like it's like a it is. It's like a puzzle. It's like okay, you want because mimicry and well, transcription and then mimicry was a huge part of my development as a composer. I mean, for for the most part, for most of my career, I have just been like a, a clever thief. Mm. I've just been stealing. 
and like slightly augmenting, slightly augmenting <laughs> something, you know. And I feel fortunate that I have the ear to do that. Um, and, you know, some and a lot of formal training, but a lot of it is ear, I think. Um, and just being like, you know, you want something that is like a detective-y stinger. And then I get to be like, hmm, what's going to work as a detective-y yeah. stinger? You know, and what send me scale, a variety what, of choices. What aesthetic, what instrumentation. Yeah, and then I get to come up with a bunch of them. It's like a bag of tricks. So film composition, there was a time when that was a specific thing I knew you were really interested in. Yeah. Is that still the case? It's such, a, it's such a hard field to break into. It's a hard field to break into. I, I would do it. I like doing it when I have when it's like collaborations that I'm just am, am into people, you know, I, our connection, it's like, okay, well, that's obvious. I want to do that. You know, I think the business, when I first had that idea in my head of like, I want to be a film composer, it was a very romantic idea that I think I was romanticizing the early days of film scoring. Me too. Not, you know, I'm such a nostalgist that it's just like, um, it made sense, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's not that the technology has made it worse. Depends on, it's just different now, you know. It's not, it's not this like painstaking, like, you know, such commitment to the craft of like, like I watched a Dumbo recently and I was just like, my mind, those early Disney films. I know that they there are a lot of problems with them, <laughs> but the music with the image hmm. how much in and the orchestration and the thing is is that was the era when there was one microphone and an entire huge orchestra of people one microphone like that's such a science and it sounds beautiful hmm. it's warm it's just like everything from that time and i was romanticizing that and i was like i want that job i want to be the person who writes that music Maybe there were, there may have, there were probably still a lot of people working on those scores in terms of like orchestration. I mean, that was even the time when they didn't have notation software yet. So imagine writing all of those parts still like by hand hmm. for every single person in the ensemble. There's something like romantic about the suffering in that for me. <laughs> I don't know why, but there I did is. a traveling theater <laughs> when I was like 12 and I had to do that for the composer who turned out to be, I'm not going to remember his name, but he's a very famous jazz sax saxophone player now. Um, you were it, writing out parts? I was trying to impress him, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. It's just, yeah. My so aesthetic is more like the earliest days of film. So when music first came in in film, it was primarily live. because it was, it was live. live, of course. And it was like the initial impetus really was it's too noisy in here. Like you can hear the projector, you yeah. can hear the popcorn maker, you can hear let's all the noise. Let's get a big loud organ in yeah, here let's to get fix something this problem. In here. Yeah, exactly. I love it. <laughs> we'll be right back. This episode of The Uncertain Artist is sponsored by Seattle Theater Group, a crucial component of our artistic community. STG's mission is to create enriching experiences in the arts, engage diverse communities, and steward historic theaters. I've performed or screened films in two of their venues, the Paramount and the Moore, and my eldest, Sam, has performed in the Paramount and the Neptune. And of course, we've seen acts in all three of these really wonderfully restored and maintained theaters. Our thanks to this terrific nonprofit for many memorable evenings, and please keep them coming. And we're back. 
in what is turning out to be a very fun, almost family get together. Uh, your family, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, Charlie, I think you had a question. Yeah, I totally forgot my question from the beginning. Um, so the episode that we watched, episode five, we saw a clip of. Um, at the end, there's that beautiful song that you and Charlie Rathbun sing. Mm. And I wanted to know whether you guys sung that together at the same time or recorded separately or how that experience was for you in general. Yes, yes, yes. That song. It is a Carter family song, mm. right? Yeah. Beautiful song. Um we went to Jack Straw, right? Didn't we go to Jack yes, Straw? Yes, you did. Jack okay, Star so yeah, we went studio. to Jack Straw Recording Studio here in town. Um, so you were in the room at Straw. You were I was in the, in the room, room with Charlie. Time. I guess we didn't. We didn't really rehearse. No, yeah. you told me you were like, "This is the song we're gonna record," and I came up with the banjo part for it. Mm, I think okay. I'm playing. Isn't it banjo and acoustic guitar? Do I, if I'm remembering, I think that's right. Sounds like yeah. I think it's yeah, two voices. And I, and I remember Charlie came back just on cloud nine. Just thought it was such a yeah. Were we harmonizing? I have to go back and listen. To you that. were harmonizing. We were harmonizing. Yeah. I came up with the banjo part, like probably the day before, and then yeah. that morning, we went to Jack Straw and I don't know. We, I'm sure we played it a couple times and then hit record and. It and would it have come day. out substantially yeah. different if you'd been in separate cities doing it? one after the other yeah, yeah i think so i think that type of music in particular is really about like it's it's community oriented it's really you know harmonizing it it, was, it wasn't like a super um composed it wasn't super composed it was like so fairly my, my question was a loaded one because i want you guys to do it again for season three different carter family song a diff an old song like that i tend to go there yeah, yeah. um i do have the song in mind but okay. uh we'll talk and but that would involve flying you up probably, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean we could try to do it so that it coincides with something else, you know, another gig or something. Yeah. Have a, so a lot of people up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing you say that it's so cool because I really it seems like it's just Charlie Rathbone alone and then your voice comes in and it's pretty clear you guys are together. I was really hoping that you guys were together when you did. We're open, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about you acting in that episode. So um, uh, let's see. If I recall, Greg's character has uh, called together some who, who we don't know who they are. Maybe they're friends. <laughs> they're, but there's three of yeah. you. And he's uh, presumably he's had you watch uh, part of uh, the uncertain detective, black and white uncertain detective, and then wants to get some feedback. So this is a Zoom call with everyone giving Greg uh, not so helpful <laughs> feedback. You really can't get you them to, data, to focus. But yeah. we, just, we won't give it to you. You won't give us the data, right? <laughs> well, let's let's listen to that. So, yeah, this is... Uh, uh, Vic Mace and Maggie Brown are the two actors in this clip. And me. Yeah, so let's listen to that. Yeah, time is like color. No individual atom has color. Uh, but with, with density increasing, the color blue or red or yellow emerges. It's the same thing with time. There, time isn't there. We perceive time the same way we perceive color. Yeah, not just linear time. I mean, there's many different times as there are colors, smells, musical notes. 
I mean, there's circular time. I've noticed that time sometimes goes zigzag. Well, there's a lot of different words for colors. There's so many different ones. We have words for all of them. We should have words for the different types of time. Yeah, but what about love? Is love emergent? Do people feel like this ended on enough of a cliffhanger that you want to see what happens next? Uh, a lot of cultures have several words for different kinds of love, but the recent one I've been researching is Greek. Apparently there are seven different words. Uh, it's still unclear if it's just seven, but um, I don't know. Other cultures may have more or less. English seems to be the most limited. Uh, we have romantic love and familial love uh, and so on, but they all fall under the umbrella of the word love still, uh, rather than having distinct words. Uh, I don't know, just a thought. I loved you in this clip, Maggie. It was so wonderful. Um, I laughed at every line in the beginning <laughs> when I watched it again recently the other day. Um, until the last line when it starts to get you start to talk about love and language and just like has this really cool uh, first of all your attitude with it is just like spectacular and makes you like remember this maybe isn't a laughing time <laughs> and the zigzag line is incredible <laughs> so what do you remember about how that process evolved and came to be with this episode yeah um my work in the episode yeah um, a couple things. I remember my hippie long hair. Miss it. Might get it back someday. I was not memorizing the lines. We were doing it in like chunks. Yeah. Um, so that I wouldn't have to memorize. I just, I got, I'm lazy these days, you know? Memorization is a fraught subject on a show where we're, we're just moving and going. Yeah, and, I feel like know. it almost made sense to not memorize it, you know? And that's what everyone who doesn't memorize their line says. Right. Yeah. It made complete <laughs> sense. That was obviously the way to go. <laughs> I'll say Make that sure I, that you don't memorize. I never memorize. No, that's not true. Yeah, no, you're I an amazing sometimes. actor, Charlie. You're Thank an amazing you. actor. Yeah. So but most keep of the up time, the good work. <laughs> not memorizing. I'll read it right before and like try to really get it down right before most of the time. I so, read it. I got the sentiment of it and I got into the demeanor. You know, and we would have had a meeting to read through and make changes. Um, we did do yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Right. There was a little bit of editing that I was also, it was collaborative editing. Yeah. And it's another instance of both with you, Charlie and Maggie, of I could not have written that scene uh, nearly as well if I didn't have the knowledge of who was going to be doing it. So there's something that you bring, you know, that I'm intimately familiar with. And I've never asked you this, but I don't know to what extent you're aware of what you bring, if that even makes sense as a question. I am now. When I first started doing, like, being in films and theater in the, you know, in the city with a couple different people, Lynn, Dana, you, mostly, primarily, um, Megan, I didn't really know. I was sort of like, I mean, I have some skills, you know, like, I can, I can dance, you know, and I can, like, but otherwise, I was sort of like, why are you wanting me to be in these things, you know. Um, but now I think it is a certain sentimentality, maybe, 
Like, That's a cool word. I, I am really sentimental, and I can't hide it. I can't hide how sentimental I am. Yeah. And so when we're talking about these subjects like time and love, even if they're in like a humorous context, it's very hard for me to not take it really seriously and, and get sentimental about it. Wow, you, that you kind of nailed it. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, is that what you were thinking? Um, no, I couldn't have. I couldn't have vocalized what what There's it is. There's also a, a weakness that I think that I bring, which is also like a form of failing, almost. You know, where it's like I am not afraid to be weak, mm. and I actually that's kind of like now that I'm like older and have reflected on my work and my years of doing of making art in different mediums or whatever um i'm okay with just saying yeah I'm, I'm weak and that's part of what i bring to the table and even like leaning into that and of course trust is important trust is really important and yeah i mean i fortunately i've collaborated the people who i have collaborated are with primarily aren't strangers mm. there's different levels of trust that have existed on my sets over the you know the bunch of episodes uh through no fault of anyone's it's just it's a hard situation to be thrown into i think um and without that trust it's just really hard to to give a good performance i think yeah i think that's true and it's part of why i like to establish like long standing relationships with the people that I work with. And like, even in like my composing now, I tend to work with people who I know because there is a sense of people in the sense of uh, performers. performers. Yeah. I mean, I get to know them. Like I, I really like getting to know people. I want to know be an example you. of that. Right. What's going on? Oh, I mean, I have wrote a piece for five players, um, last year. Um, and they're all UCSD, uh, students. And I made sure that I like met with them one-on-one. -on -one. These are strings? Not strings. Mm. No, it was uh, trumpet, flute, trombone, um, percussion and clarinet. Oh, wow. I'd already worked with the clarinetist, but like socially, I wanted to know like, who are, who are they? Who, what are they interested in? Like, why are they playing that instrument? You know, I, I really like like to get to know people even though it's like I don't have this whole history with them like I do with you guys you know but still I'm not just viewing them as like you know you have that instrument and it's about the instrument you know it's about you playing that instrument mm -hmm. and that's that to me is a lot more meaningful we tend to lose that connection when we think about classical music like you watch mm -hmm. you know the Beatles in that what was that called get back get back yeah and they're clearly like making music for themselves you right, know like right. it would be a different song if someone else would, if they were writing it for someone else and then you know on the other end of the spectrum we think of mozart or or beethoven as well that would have been written the same way no matter what situation they were right. in it like it's not connected it's orchestra in whatever part of the country yeah versus... do you think that's true yeah, it's yeah. part of what I don't don't like about classical music. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of classical music I don't like. And I don't consider my music, just because I have classical training, I don't consider my music classical music, like at all, <laughs> really. Um, so uh, even though I'm in that world, yeah. admittedly. But um, yeah, I think that's... Okay, well, we have a question from... Where's our audience member from today? And what's the question? Gravy. Gravy's our producer. Me. Um, hey, Megs. Hi. Uh, Randy 
from Bob Washington. He is curious about um, the next steps after this part of your um, education that you're pursuing right now. What comes next? Do you have goals? Really, it's a timely question. I'm in the third, finishing the third year of the PhD. Finishing. So you, you graduate, you get a master's. No, no, I already have no. a master's. No, that's sorry. You oh. graduate Cornish. Oh, I graduated Cornish. Eventually, you get a master's. Eventually, I got a master's at UC Santa Cruz, all all in composition. Now I'm getting a PhD in composition, which is it's a terminal degree. When that's the idea is that you know, well, the master's is a stepping stone. The master's doesn't really get you anything except into the the potential to hmm. do a PhD. I guess maybe it helps a little bit with certain teaching. You know, I'm also an educator, and I and I am passionate about music education and arts education, not just music, but. Um, so you were saying you're in your third year. In the third year, I'm finishing the coursework, and so it's kind of like, and then your ABD, all but dissertation. <laughs> That's such a funny acronym. I know, right? Why <laughs> ABD? Um, I want to be ABD. I am yeah. ABD. Well, it gives you, that's when you, that's when you, after you do this qualifying exam, then you're a PhD candidate. Mm. That's the difference. I'll never get so, there. So, um, yeah, and it's, it's been so much work, you know, and there's a part of me that's like, but I do it for me, you know, I'm not doing it to get so, you know, with the absolute end goal of like, I'm going to be a college professor. Because now that I have, now that I would get the PhD, that is the door that it opens. You know, it opens tenure track teaching jobs, mm. which are the most secure. And it's sort of like, but they're also a lot of work. Yeah. And and sometimes, you know, right now I'm definitely at a stage where I'm sort of like, is that even really what I want? <laughs> you know, like I've worked so hard to get to this place and it's so it's jumping through a lot of hoops you know it's not just like sitting and composing and being creative like that's actually a pretty small slice of the pie in terms of like what I have to spend my energy on in order to still survive and like you know I'm teaching I'm doing coursework I'm doing organizing I'm doing projects outside of school so that I my resume is strong and, and all of these things um and still trying to like have a soul at the end of the day. And, and you have years of doing what it takes, teaching guitar lessons, whatever, in order to barely bear, to get. I mean, in other words, you yeah. know that you. That's well, part I, of what brought me back to getting back. You know, I spent a couple years out of the masters, not not being in school, and I was teaching lessons mostly and, like, doing some gigs and trying to piece it all together, and it's really hard. It's hard to be an independent artist, and there is something very, like, you know, I do want that safety and security. I don't know if being a tenure-track professor in composition is necessarily what I want at this stage. I know that getting that piece of paper will open that door, and that is important to have the option, but I also like homemaking, and uh, I also value family and, you know, things like that and <laughs> things like that. Big picture life, yeah, big yeah. life things yeah. um, that as a a woman in your 30s, you know, you're thinking about. So, And it's important to say that out loud so you hear yourself and know what you want. I know. Yeah, it is. And I do think that being a woman does affect just because I have a biological window that's like going to close at some point, you know. These are like, very, this got really serious and weird <laughs> and personal, but 
yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. And to answer your question, Randy, it's it's all up in the air. <laughs> yes, I'm going to finish the PhD though. That is for sure. I'm not going oh, yeah, I'm not going to sure. drop out. Yeah, I think I think yeah, even if I take I might take a year off once I do finish the coursework and the qualifying exam. I've been considering that because it has been 3 years, you know. Mm. But it's also hard to be moving a lot. Like throughout the past 10 years, I've moved back and forth from California a couple times, even within Seattle, moved different places several times. And, you know, moving is stressful. It's one of the most stressful things. So, Charlie, you grew up in a family under somewhat similar circumstances and wanting to make art and not having enough money to do it. Uh, so, And we moved a lot. Did you yeah. think that was hard? Moving is definitely really hard. I mean... It was like that first move. I remember like telling my great friend Lucia, like, I'm about to move across the country and it just being so what sad. We, yeah, going to New York. Um, what, what, how old were you though? I was going into third grade or fourth grade, one of the two. Um, and it was just so like, we don't get to have play dates anymore and play with our toys. And that yeah. was like the biggest thing in the world was just not yeah. going to do that anymore. Um, but and I've you always, stayed in New York, right? Yeah. yeah. And I've always been good at, like, making friends kind of quick and, like, finding a way to be comfortable where I am. It's true. As humans, we just we, we just are forced to adjust. We're really good at that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not necessarily easy. It hasn't been easy to be. Yeah, I definitely, it's like, you know, where is my home? Do you have. I don't even know. That's the hard part. Yeah. Like a person or a, um, uh, like, you know, has 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 gone down a path, oh, I'd like to go down that path. Like, is there a, a mm -hmm. role model or a, a situation that feels like? Yeah. Um, yes and no. I, well, most of my mentors... In, and most of the musicians that I've studied and, and admired, I admit, have been men. And I do think that there is a difference in, you know, it's hard to base your life. It's hard for me sometimes to be like, oh, well, here's a mentor of mine. Like, I, I, I think Jared Powell seems to have some cool, you know, like he's he has a loft in Seattle and he's got all the instruments there and it's beautiful. And, you know, his wife has her painting studio there and I'm just like, wow, this is great. You know? Yeah, that sounds I would, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and, and he taught, you know, at Cornish for years and years and kind of took that route of like, well, it's, but also did a lot of work outside of Cornish, you know, it wasn't like teaching was his only thing. Um, and he ran the ensemble and I'm sort of like, that's, that's really cool. You know, like I could, maybe I could have my own ensemble or maybe I could keep programming like evening length, uh, of my work and, and, you know, or I'm pretty, I've become good at organizing. You're really good at organizing. Because you have to, yeah. you have to, I don't have yeah. someone to organize for me. And so that is a skill that I've developed. And that's a skill also that, you know, to go back to Randy's question that I could put toward another job. Like L what? Administ arts administration, oh. you know, like those are skills that can, Yeah. not to say that that would necessarily be my first choice, but in a way, teaching is like, you know, it's not directly, I do have a passion for teaching, but it's still not composing at the end of the day. You know, it's still something that's not your working directly on your art. 
Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I think there have been a lot of people whose paths I've admired and and many of them are teacher composers. Mm. And so that is also part of what has drawn me back to academia at the end of the day is like, oh, I want that. Even if I don't end up choosing that, I would like that option to be available. Do you do the whole grant thing and try to find ways to I do. Get that? Yeah. Um I mean I apply it? for commissions. I apply for things pretty regularly at good this at this point. Um especially, you know, not all of them are but many of them still at this stage in my career, like entering mid stage, I would say, for a composer, like this would be my entering mid stage. They are still you know, not like paying the bills. Mm -hmm. It's still a lot of like, oh, I'm going to do this because maybe there's a small cash prize or something. But ultimately, it's like it really looks good on my resume. Mm. So that would. But there's been <laughs> the thing is, is that becomes kind of a trap because there's so many. It's like, gosh, it's been like the fifth year since I've been being like, well, I don't really need to make any money. I'm just going to do this extremely labor intensive project for pennies because it looks good on my resume. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, I, I just don't, that's just not sustainable. I mean, yes, it'd be great to get one of the big $50,000 grants someday, but I don't think that I'm, I, I'm not there yet. I could be there one day. I still think that that's a, I wouldn't say that that is a life of safety and security. So I'm feeling very dad-like now, but um, so my, uh, Charlie's older brother, knew what he was going to do yeah. since he was like he really 10 independent career and in a way that's lucky right like yeah. he's he's had he's known what his heart was telling him to do yeah you also have had that not as lucky in the sense of being in a commercially right. you know as commercially viable but you've got your eye on the ball and have you know charlie's much more like me like i didn't really like my line in the 20s was everyone says, you know, follow your heart. Well, it's easy to follow your heart. The hard part is figuring out what your heart's telling you you want to do. Like mm -hmm. is once you have that, I you know, know exactly where my heart is. That yeah. has been very clear for a very long time, yeah. like you mentioned. Um, but yeah, if you're not commercially viable, like, you know. Did I describe you? <laughs> um, yeah, did no, that, totally. That ring and that kind of ties into a question that I had for you a little bit is like, you said you taught yourself guitar at a super young age. Like that's something when you decide you want to do something, is it like a clear, like with that deciding you wanted to learn guitar, was it like, I want to learn guitar. I'm going to do this for hours every day, just right then and there. Cause that's something that's really hard for me to like decide. Yeah. Maybe it is a certain personality type that just like, I, I, I am obsessive like in all areas of my life. Like if I am obsessed with something, it's just, that's it. You know, it's just this. And in a way it's a blessing, but it's also a curse. Totally. It's also a curse. Yeah. It's like one time you came up and you said, I'm going to cook you a meal. And, and like the emails came in advance and here's what we need. And like, there was a lot of planning involved. I was like, wow, this is a, uh, audacious meal you're preparing and then it was a pretty simple like it was delicious but it really didn't require quite that obsessive in yeah advance well work. you should see me like chop zucchini you know? <laughs> we didn't we didn't have a grater normally i'll grate and then it's like perfectly grated but i wanted to recreate i was like okay well we don't have the grater i'm going to be the grater and then it's obsessive it's just <laughs> yeah. how thin and you know the same size yeah it needs to all be perfect 
And that kind of perfectionism, yeah, it gives it gives you a certain drive that's like, uh, but it also is sort of it can really hold you back. Like there are certain things that I did not learn how to do until pretty late in life. Driving is one of them. Like I am, you bike. I don't everywhere. know if I can. Yeah, I was a bike cyclist for years. What else? What else, else holds you back? I don't know how to pump gas. Well, I'm not even kidding. I don't know how to pump gas. <laughs> I'm looking right at the camera and admitting this publicly. I have been shown. I'm not obsessed with pumping gas. Yeah, good. that's the thing. That's why how it holds you back. Like if I were obsessed with driving and road trips and fun times with my friends on the road or whatever, I would have learned to drive right you know like 15 year old like, are you like when you're 50 are you gonna look back and go dang i didn't have a childhood i was too no you, you no you, you, I, you had a childhood i had a childhood yeah. i did have a childhood i was i definitely was a little bit different i mean i you know like in terms of i spent a lot of time rehearsing and in theaters and on sets and yeah it's like that did affect me but do i regret it no i thought it was mm. great you know, and I definitely, they were never, they were, one thing is that I was around, it was, they were pretty adult environments, not in like a negative way. Like it wasn't like dangerous or inappropriate in any sort of way, but you know, I was often the only child in the room. And, or you and Sam. Or me and Sam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with your guys' things, but like with Lynn and Dana, those were like large scale projects that yeah. took a lot of time. And, um, and also Dana I was Hansen in that, Dana Hansen, what, what was that yeah. film? Uh, I was in a couple of her oh, okay. productions and then a film later and I was the youngest person in the cast yeah, always. always. And, um, and there's something like kind of fun about that, but it also maybe it didn't hold me back, but it did give me a mindset of like getting used to that. I so think. I, you know, at a certain point you, in life, you're old enough that you've said the same thing over and over. You know, you no longer know if it's true or you just yeah, keep repeating right. it. But what I say is, and what I think is true is, uh, we put Sam in our shows because it was very clear, so we thought, that he was going to do something that involved, did not involve being public because he was very shy. So I, I sort of thought, well, you know, this will be an experience that he'll, you know, can be look back on when he's a plumber or whatever. Um, <laughs> when he's a good working class. Player. When we moved to New York, Charlie, you asked me to get you an agent. Do you remember this? Yeah, kind of. Well, yeah. Charlie's the he. You like want to wanted to pursue acting. Maybe you still do. Well, yeah. and I said no because I thought, well, maybe that is something he would want to do older, and it's just too dangerous to be ten and be a yeah. child actor and right. look at look at the numbers of people who you know, didn't survive well. Substance so I don't know if I regret that or what, but... You better regret it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'd be living lavish. <laughs> we would have already had success oh, in Hollywood. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so I do regret it. No, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm glad that I wasn't That's interesting into that. that you say you did it because Sam was shy. Well, you remember he was so shy. He was. I mean, and so was I. I used yeah, to have you like were a, too, yeah. a weird thing where... I mean, talking about the red cheek thing earlier about yeah. in the classroom, in elementary school, I had this, I went through a weird phase, maybe this, this isn't that personal, but I did go through, it was about a year where the teacher would call on me. We can't hear you, <laughs> you know, and I would not let anyone hear my voice. Mm. That's how shy, painfully shy. 
and it became an issue, you know. Um, I got over it, but and now you're this terrific singer. I do sing, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, and I've grown into my voice yeah. for sure. But it took a long time. It took a lot of like self work and work on my self esteem. I think that I don't know. It just sort of you're forced to. You're put into situations over and over and over again. And part of that, what I actually learned part of that from performing. It's like okay, you're going to be on stage or you're going to be on camera. You got to speak up. So I, the way I remember it with Sam, I, I was, I think we were doing a test of the podcast and Sam was our test guest. And I think this is when it came up. Um, so my concern was that I ruined his life by, <laughs> by throwing him in, okay, into shows. Work. His concern, as it turns out, his con concern was for his parents. Duh. Like, why wouldn't I have thought of that? He was worried that what if people don't like the show that his parents made? Mm. Yeah. You know, and and what if I mess up and my parents get the brunt of the criticism or something? Like, uh, obviously, in hindsight, that's the what you would be worried about as a kid. Yeah. Well, did you feel always. any of that when you were? I do think that having it be someone else's parents probably mm. helps. Um. I mean, I think for my parents, honestly, it was like free babysitting yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and i got to have these cool experiences that in all honesty i don't think we could afford you know it's yeah, expensive well, to like go to you went to paris the, do the camp yeah right and there it was paid for you know and that was the first time i had ever gone out of the country mm. so was was that and i really it didn't really leave the country again for a long time yeah I've always found ways to travel through my art because I always wanted to travel, but, you know, didn't have the resources. And that was that's another cool thing about if you pour everything into your work, sometimes these opportunities come along. I mean, pretty much the only way I travel is if I I'm going to film a scene somewhere. I can't just travel. It doesn't my me and that thing don't go together well. Yeah. I mean, I think. One day. Yeah. One day it'll become more of a leisure thing. But. Well, um, these go really fast, yeah. as I warned you. Yeah. Um, was there any last one question that you were dying to ask? I thought um, that there was. No, really. I kind of got it out with tagging onto your question. What was it like here being the Joe Guppy of today? Oh, yeah, Joe's the, on vacation. That's why he's not here today. It's pretty cool. It's kind of don't have too much pressure on me as much as you guys do. I'm you get to lean out. back. You're the, the only one who leans back. back. I'm sitting here like the jolly green giant. <laughs> I get to hold on to questions for a long time. <laughs> wow. Super you fun. Your, your questions were good, though. Mm, thank you. I loved Randy's question. Randy yeah, and Randy. Bothell. Good job. Yeah. Thank you, Randy, for the question. We get good questions question. from our audience. Well, Magala, thanks so much. It was thank a treat. You. Yeah. yeah thanks right. so much. And Charlie, thank you. Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Guys. Gravy, thank you. All right. Time for my outro. Please join us next time for another episode of The Uncertain Artist. And if you have a question we can ask our guest in a future episode, or ask ourselves, drop it to us in the comments if you're watching on YouTube, or email it to us. Our email is theuncertainartist at gmail.com. Also, save the date. Season 3 of The Uncertain Detective will premiere February 26th, 2024 at 7 p.m. at the SIF Film Center. We'll follow the screening with a live taping of this podcast, so come join us. Tickets are free and can be reserved through the Seattle International Film Festival website. We hope to see you there. <laughs>